0: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 21 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Richard Buckland had spent the last three months in a jail cell. The 17-year-old had confessed to the brutal rape and murder of teenager Dawn Ashworth. A similar death had occurred nearby three years before. The victim, Linda Mann, had been found only a few hundred yards away from where Dawn's body was discovered. The police thought the murders were connected, but Richard Buckland vehemently denied having anything to do with Linda's death. Dawn's body had been found near Carlton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital in Narborough, Leicestershire earlier that year. Richard Buckland was employed as a porter at the hospital and his name had been brought to the attention of police. A colleague of Richard's called to report a conversation in which the porter said that Dawn's lifeless body had been found hanging from a tree near a bridge over the M1 motorway. Dawn wasn't discovered until a day after his comments. Richard had been on the suspect list when Linda Mann was murdered. At the time, he was 14 and very tall for his age. He had mild learning difficulties. He had unnerved a few women in his local village by hiding and jumping out at them, which prompted a number of people to suggest Richard to police. Early on in the investigation, the belief was that the killer lived locally. Richard lived in Narborough. Narborough and Enderby flanked either side of the locations the girls were found. Police interviewed the 14-year-old in relation to the murder of Linda Mann, but crossed him off the suspect list. Now nearly three years on, with a second murder and tip-off from a hospital worker, detectives decided to look into Richard Buckland again. Their suspicions were aroused by the regular sight of the youth sitting on his motorcycle watching police, just outside the taped-off area where Dawn Ashworth's body had been found. A day after the discovery, Richard approached an officer as he left the scene. Richard claimed to have seen Dawn walking on the footpath on the night of her murder. It seemed like all the pieces of the investigation were beginning to fit together. The next day Richard was collected for questioning at 5am in the morning. He threw on some clothes before being taken to Wigston Police Station. Intensive interviews began and Richard's account of the day Dawn Ashworth went missing varied wildly. His first recollection as he saw Dawn walking as he was driving by on his motorbike. He wanted to stop and say hello to the 15-year-old, but as oil was leaking from the tank on his motorbike, he was unable to do so. Police informed Richard about the call they received from his colleague at the hospital. Richard denied he said any of it. In fact, he said the conversation had been the other way round. The more he was questioned, the more his account changed. At one point he said he had spoken to Dawn, contrary to what he had said earlier in the interview, and again he backtracked, claiming he never spoke to her. Throughout the interview, Richard continually contradicted himself. By the end of the day, his story had evolved to the point where a man had apparently followed both him and Dawn as they strolled along the footpath chatting, but Richard couldn't recall any further details. Detectives thought that by showing him a picture of Dawn it might jog his memory. This sparked a new admission from Richard, in which he claimed his mind went blank after a struggle with the teenager. As soon as he admitted this, he retracted the statement. When he was asked why he would confess if he didn't do it, Richard replied, To settle your story. The interviews continued the next day, with each new admission being followed by a retraction. Richard's story had progressed to the stage where he admitted to overpowering Dawn clasping his hands firmly over her mouth and nose. He then said he sexually assaulted her. The statement was typed up, outlining all the major points of his confession, and it was signed. Three days after initially being taken to the police station on August 10th 1986, Richard Buckland was charged with murder. The next day he made his first appearance in court. Now was the time to build a solid case, but investigators came across some major stumbling blocks. Although they had a shaky confession for the murder of Dawn Ashworth, Richard was adamant he hadn't killed Linda Mann. Detectives were sure the two murders were committed by the same person. Desperate for more evidence to solidify their case, they turned to an unlikely source for help, Dr. Alec Jeffries, a geneticist who worked nearby. Two years earlier, Dr. Jeffries had been studying the way inherited diseases pass through families. After what he thought was a failed experiment, he made an amazing discovery. DNA was removed from the cells. Next, the samples were placed on photographic film, which was then put in a developing tank. Once removed, Dr. Jeffries studied the samples, which appeared as a series of bars. After studying the results, he realised each DNA sample was unique. The initial scope of this new discovery was to test for some inherited diseases and kinship. The idea of using it in criminal cases wasn't thought of until later. One of the first times DNA was officially used was for government testing to confirm the identity of children trying to gain residency in Britain. Officials believed this small group of children had been part of a scam to falsely obtain British citizenship. A number of couples had claimed the children were theirs biologically so the infants could stay in the country indefinitely. Utilising this new analysis meant you could compare both the parents' and child's DNA to get a positive answer on their biological relationship. The idea that DNA could be used to solve crimes was met with scepticism by those who attended Dr. Jeffrey's talks. Even so, word of the new technique got back to Leicestershire Police, who were at a standstill in their attempts to prove that Richard Buckland committed both murders. When Dr. Jeffries took a call asking him to test the semen found on the bodies of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, he accepted and got to work straight away. When the results came in, the police were confident they were going to get the proof they needed that Richard Buckland was responsible. They were stunned to learn that the DNA found on Linda did not match Richard Buckland, but a week later they were even more shocked as the sample from Dawn Ashworth wasn't a match either. The doctor performed the test twice more, but the results confirmed his initial findings. Not only was Richard not responsible for the murders, but it also established the same person committed both crimes. Dr. Jeffries recalls the senior investigating officer saying, one minute we got the guy, and the next we've got jack shit. Richard Buckland was not guilty, despite his false confession. He was the first person to be exonerated due to DNA profiling police gave a short statement to the press.
1: Those tests which were carried out did not implicate Mr. Buckland in the death of Linda Mann. The results of the tests indicate that a person as yet unknown was involved in the deaths of the two girls.
2: Back at square one with no viable suspects, it occurred to police that if DNA could exonerate Richard Buckland, maybe it could convict the perpetrator. On January 2, 1987, a new plan to catch the killer was launched. Investigators believed the culprit was from the local area due to the location where the girls were found and he was likely a young man due to his sperm count. Men aged between 16 and 34 in the surrounding villages were sent an invitation by Detective Superintendent Anthony Painter to give DNA which involved a saliva swab and a blood test. The letter read, Dear Sir, you will be aware now that a large-scale police inquiry is taking place in this area to trace the person responsible for the tragic deaths of two local girls, Linda Mann, aged 15 years, and Dawn Ashworth, 15 years. The success of this operation can only be achieved by the wholehearted assistance and cooperation of the community, and it is to this end we are making a direct approach to you. For elimination purposes, we are endeavouring to obtain certain samples from the male population in the area. These samples will consist of blood and saliva only. The samples will be obtained by fully qualified medical practitioners, and when the elimination of these samples have been completed, they will be destroyed. The taking of the samples will comply with the strictest medical standards. The giving of samples is completely voluntary. Your cooperation in this matter is sought. Therefore, you are invited to attend the Balby Rural District Council offices in Narborough or Dane Mill School in Mill Lane, Enderby between 7pm and 8.30pm on the arranged date. It would be helpful if you could be in possession of some form of identification in addition to this letter when attending. If you are under 17 years of age, you must be accompanied by your parent or guardian. If you are unable to attend the time and date indicated, please telephone Inspector Thomas where an alternative date will be arranged. Just under 5,000 men received the letter. On Monday, November 21st, 1983, Linda Mann left her home in Narborough to go and babysit for a family nearby. She walked along a secluded path known locally as Black Pad. Beyond a metal fence on one side of the path was Carlton Hayes Psychiatric Hospital. At the end of the path was King Edward Avenue, a reasonably busy road that leads to Leicester. The 15-year-old wasn't nervous about walking the path alone, as she had done it many times before, and Narborough and the surrounding villages were close-knit communities and low-crime areas. Later that evening, Linda's mother, Kath Eastwood, returned home from her shift at work, expecting her daughter to be there already. It was uncharacteristic for Linda not to tell her mother where she was. Kath was worried. She spent the night looking out of the living room window, waiting for her child to return home. Kath Eastwood later said that she wanted to believe Linda was spending the night at a friend's house who she didn't know. In the morning, she watched as children passed her front window on their way to school. And Kath thought she might spot Linda doing the same. Tragically, she would learn otherwise. The police arrived at her home and informed her that a porter on his way to work at the Carlton Hayes Hospital had discovered Linda's body on the hospital grounds. Linda had been raped before she was strangled with her own scarf. Leicestershire police were desperate to catch the culprit. They believed the perpetrator could be local due to the fact he knew where the footpath was located and how isolated it was. The culprit had to leave the scene without drawing attention to themselves and in a small village it was probable the murderer didn't stand out and knew how to get there without being seen. Despite their assumptions, detectives were also aware they might be wrong. King Edward Avenue led to Leicester and this road had a connection to the M1 motorway raising the possibility the killer could be from anywhere in the country. There had also been another murder of a dark-haired teenager a couple of days before in Keyworth, Nottinghamshire. Colette Aram, a 16-year-old trainee hairdresser, had left her home to walk the one and a half miles to her boyfriend's. She was reported missing that night, but the next day her body was discovered in a field. Like Linda Mann, Colette had been subjected to a sexual assault before she was strangled. Via the M1, it would take roughly 36 minutes to travel from one crime scene to the other. It would be confirmed many years later that Colette and Linda's murders were not related, but in the meantime, the police had to keep in mind the similarities across both cases. Locals were cautious to walk alone at night for fear that a killer was among them. Posters requesting information were pinned on notice boards and placed in shop windows. The text read, Did you see this girl? 15-year-old Linda Mann after 7.15 on Monday the 21st of November. Below the contact number for the local authorities, a large black and white photograph of Linda featured her dark bobbed hair framed against the teenager's smiling face. No viable witnesses or solid leads had materialised, so police turned to criminal psychologist Paul Britton. The psychologist agreed with detectives' initial instincts and believed the culprit was a local man in a stable relationship and motivated by sexual fantasies. Police officers began house-to-house inquiries and during January 1984, almost two months after Linda's murder, they interviewed the man responsible. PC Neil Bunny and his partner knocked on a door in Haybarn Close, a newly built estate in the village of Little Thorpe. A woman answered and invited them both in. She called her husband who was upstairs fitting some flooring. When he came down after a few minutes, he was slightly flustered because the floorboards he was laying were stolen. However, he was relieved when he realised the police weren't there to discuss the theft. Asked about his whereabouts on Monday, November 21st, he replied that on Monday nights he normally takes care of his son while his wife goes to class. One of the police constables asked the man's wife to confirm if that's what he was doing, and she agreed that he was at home taking care of their child. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. A signature was taken from Colin Pitchfork, and PC Bunny and his colleague moved on to the next property. The investigation ground to a halt for over two years until July 31st, 1986. Like Linda Mann, Dawn Ashworth was 15 years old with short dark hair and brown eyes. Both girls had attended Lutterworth Grammar School. It was the summer holidays, so Dawn had taken a part-time job working for the local newsagents. She was saving up her money to spend on a family holiday in Norfolk. Here's Barbara Ashworth, Dawn's mother.
0: She had the opportunity, being in the newsagents, to buy every new magazine that was available and um, this really was what her money went on, clothes and her look, and she was changing and blossoming, really, from day to day.
2: On July 31st, 1986, Dawn Ashworth left her job at the newsagents and arrived home safely. She told her parents that she was going to visit her friend Sharon. Dawn said she would be home by 7 in time to babysit her brother while her parents were out. She began the walk to her friend's home from Enderby to Narborough, the next village along. Around 4.15pm, two girls from school saw her walking the journey past Brockington bowls and Tennis Courts before Dawn took the route down Ten Pound Lane, which is located on the other side of Carlton Hayes Hospital grounds roughly 100 meters from where Linda Mann's body was discovered years earlier the footpath has a small flat grass verge on either side flanked by dense trees even though king edward avenue is attached and the sound of the m1 motorway is clear this is another secluded path but also commonly used by locals walking their dogs at about 4:25 p.m. it was light outside and dawn used a shortcut off the lane and then crossed the busy King Edward Avenue, not far from a friend's home. Dawn arrived to discover a friend Sharon had popped out to use the phone box with another friend Sue. She made her way to Sue's house, but Sue's mother answered the door and suggested the girls had lightly walked into the village. Sue's mother suggested Dawn go look for them, though Dawn decided to go home instead. When she got to the shortcut that adjoins £10 lane, She only had a 15-minute walk to get back home. Sadly, Dawn did not make it. By the morning, a full-scale search for Dawn was underway, predominantly focusing on Enderby and the neighbouring village of Narborough, the latter being the destination of a walk the night before. The search also covered the area close to the grounds of Carlton Hayes Hospital, which was the route home Dawn would likely have taken. The Ashworths' property was searched, and house-to-house inquiries were carried out while tracker dogs combed the area. Dawn's denim jacket was recovered the next morning, and later that day they found the teenager's body discarded in some bushes. It was concealed in freshly mown grass, twigs and branches, with only the fingertips from one of Dawn's hands visible through the foliage. The local press picked up on the similarities in both murders and the attacks created a considerable amount of news coverage, as it was looking extremely likely that the residents of Leicestershire had a serial offender living among them. Dawn's grief-stricken parents, Robin and Barbara Ashworth, spoke about the warning they gave their daughter and how the person responsible needed to be apprehended. Dawn's case was featured on Crime Watch, a British TV programme that looked to help authorities with unsolved cases. A reconstruction was undertaken which traced Dawn's last known steps. The show generated a number of leads, with one witness spotting a young man running through traffic across a busy King Edward Avenue about 5.30pm. He was almost hit by countless oncoming cars, however the sighting turned out to be irrelevant to the case. Another lead highlighted a young man wearing a red motorcycle helmet loitering around on his motorbike at the top of Ten Pound Lane. It is now believed that the second sighting could have been Richard Buckland as he was known to hang around on his motorcycle and Ten Pound Lane was one area that borders his workplace. A second reconstruction was carried out using a policewoman dressed in similar clothing to Dawn in the hope this might jog the memories of any potential witnesses. Police believed they had caught the killer when Richard Buckland was arrested but when his innocence was proven through DNA analysis a letter was sent out requesting DNA from all the young men in the three villages surrounding the murder scenes. Volunteers would have to show photo ID ideally a passport to prove their identity. The investigation's hard work was paying off as the turnout was huge. Seven months in and of the close to 5,000 requests issued, only 400 samples had not been taken, with an additional 20 men being tracked down as they had left the area since Dawn's murder. Residents knew little about DNA, as it was the first mass testing of its kind. A volunteer questioned by a reporter was asked, Did you have any reservations about coming here to be tested tonight? He replied, Not at all, but I think the person responsible might have.
1: And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com ACAST. That's Burrow.com ACAST. Burrow.com ACAST.
2: During June 1987, a teenager had become separated from her friends on a night out in Wigston, Leicestershire. Rather than walk home, she decided to hitchhike. A man in his twenties pulled up beside her and offered her a lift. She jokingly asked, you're not a rapist, are you? She then hopped into the passenger seat. As she did up her seatbelt, she felt uneasy. After starting small talk with the driver and his response was to stare blankly ahead, she knew the trouble she was in. Her instincts proved right when he drove past the turning that would have led them in the direction of her home. She panicked, asking him to stop, but her request was ignored. She grabbed the steering wheel until the car pulled up on the grass verge and she managed to escape. Her quick response probably saved her life. Embarrassed that she attempted to hitchhike home, she wanted to forget about the incident, so didn't report it to the police. The man that gave the teenager a lift had killed twice before, and he was rattled. The letter requesting blood samples had been sent to him months before. A sample had been submitted, and he was eliminated, but the blood wasn't his. Colin Pitchfork had offered one colleague at Hampshire's Bakery £50 and then another £200 to take the blood test in his place. When they both refused, he approached a third colleague, Ian Kelly. He told Ian that he had taken the test before for a friend and if he got caught taking it again he would be in trouble. He had a wife and kids to think of. Colin also feared to take the test as he had been charged with exposing himself as a teenager and he was sure this would raise suspicions with the police. He worriedly told his colleague they might fit him up. Ian Kelly refused for about six weeks while Colin kept applying more pressure. Colin Pitchfork knew that due to the high percentage of people that had already provided a sample, he would come under police scrutiny if he didn't soon. Ian Kelly finally buckled and agreed to submit both blood and saliva on Colin's behalf. Colin carefully doctored his passport, steam ironing the plastic film, then carefully peeling it back to replace his picture with Ian Kelly's photograph. He then smoothed over the film and ironed it back into place. At the testing centres, if a valid form of photo ID wasn't supplied, a photograph of the individual being tested would be taken along with their name and address. Police would confirm their identity with neighbours and colleagues, so Colin needed to make sure that his plan to use the doctored information worked. Colin drove Ian Kelly to submit a sample and waited outside. His deception even went so far as to pricking his arm with a compass to make it bleed. It would appear to people at work and his wife that he had given blood for the test. He and Kelly went inside, coached perfectly by Colin Pitchfork. He could recite Colin's name, date of birth and address as if it were his own. Colin returned to work claiming that he had taken the test and over the coming months the samples of DNA were worked through and all men tested were eliminated. Despite the massive amount of resource needed to carry out the testing, detectives were sure the killer was under their noses, but the investigation had lost its pace. Blood tests were sporadic, and there were no new leads. That was until almost eight months after Ian Kelly took the DNA blood test for Colin Pitchfork. On August 1st, 1987, Ian Kelly was having lunch in the Clarendon pub on Montague Road with some other staff from the bakery, and the manager, Jackie Foggin, was in attendance. As the conversation between staff continued, the subject moved to Colin Pitchfork. Ian Kelly revealed to his colleagues that he had taken the DNA test on behalf of Colin, and another colleague interjected, saying Colin had offered him money to do the same, but he refused. Upon hearing this, Jackie Foggin was unsure of what to do. Over the course of the next six weeks, it weighed on her conscience, but she couldn't stay quiet any longer. The landlord of the Clarington pub had a son who was in the police force, so she decided to divulge the information to him over lunch. This revelation was passed on to those working on the investigation, and they moved swiftly. A comparison of the signatures written on the blood test consent form and captured during the house-to-house visits was completed and showed that documents had been signed in a completely different way. On September 19th, 1987, two arrests were made the first was Ian Kelly and the second Colin Pitchfork police waited outside the Pitchfork's property in unmarked police cars for a few tense hours until Colin returned to his semi detached home with his wife and their two young sons in tow as officers jumped from their vehicles to make the arrest Colin's wife Carol was shocked and frantic when she found out what her husband was being arrested for she screamed did you kill those girls Colin He confessed before he was even in an interview room. Carol Pitchfork was a social worker when she met Colin, and worryingly, he was a volunteer for Bernardo's, a children's charity. When he was 18, he was caught indecently exposing himself to young girls. He avoided jail time but had to partake in an outpatient programme at Colton Hayes Hospital for exposing himself again two years later. It's not known whether Carol was aware of his conviction when she married him that year in 1981. The couple had their first son about two years later, and one night when the infant was four months old, his father took him out in his carry seat, placing him in the back of the car. During his police interview, Colin Pitchfork explained what happened on the night of November 21st, 1983. While his wife was on a course, he was on the prowl that evening and wanted to find a young girl to expose himself to. When he came across Linda Mann walking along a footpath, he unzipped his trousers. Colin said that if she had walked past him, he would have let her go. However, her alarmed expression and attempt to run away excited him. He caught up with her but in his version of events, the teenager agreed to have sex with him as long as he didn't hurt her. But Colin panicked, thinking he would be easily identified by his earrings, a wedding band and being a young man with thinning hair. He raped and strangled Linda Mann before leaving her body to be found the next morning. After this callous crime, he returned to his car with his infant son in the back and collected his wife from her course just as he did every Monday night. A few years later, a similar fate awaited Dawn Ashworth. Colin Pitchfork had been driving around on his motorbike once again looking for a female teenager to expose himself to. He saw Dawn approach 10 Pound Lane. Colin stopped and dismounted his bike, following her down the narrow footpath. He managed to get ahead and that's when he lowered his trousers. Feeling trapped, Dawn was scared and tried to get through a gate to escape the confines of the path. Colin Pitchfork dragged the young girl through the gate to an adjoining field. Dawn tried to fight her attacker, but she was overpowered and brutally raped. Once again fearing the consequences of being identified, Colin ended Dawn's life strangling her from behind. In the interview room, Colin Pitchfork continued to talk. He admitted his compulsion to expose himself to teenage girls hadn't stopped after his previous arrest and hospital treatment and he also admitted to hundreds of instances of flashing over the years. Even more worryingly, he confessed to committing a list of sexual assaults. At Leicester Crown Court, Colin Pitchfork admitted his guilt, and in addition to the murders of Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, he was also charged with two counts of rape, two counts of sexual assault, and one count of conspiring to pervert the course of justice. For the murders, he received life imprisonment and an additional 19 years in total were added for the other charges to run concurrently with his life sentence. No recommendation for a minimum term to be served was added, much to the frustration of the victim's families, police agencies and the public. Ian Kelly pled guilty to conspiracy to pervert the course of justice and was sentenced to two years in prison suspended for 18 months it was accepted that Ian Kelly was not aware he was covering for a murderer. So where are we now? Dr. Alec Jeffries is now Sir Alec Jeffries. He gained a knighthood for services to genetics in 1994. DNA testing is now used as a reliable tool in criminal cases worldwide. Though rarely has such a large sweep of testing been carried out since the arrest and conviction of Colin Pitchfork. It is more likely to be used to prove the guilt of one or two suspects rather than eliminating thousands of people. Police put forward bakery manager Jackie Foggin to receive 50% of a reward that was put up by an anonymous donor after Dawn Ashworth's murder. Her actions led to the arrest of Colin Pitchfork. A £10,000 cheque was given to her by the chairman of Next, a retail chain that Dawn's mother worked for. Ian Kelly spoke on an ITV documentary and credits himself with the capture of Colin Pitchfork after he told his colleagues about the blood test deception in the pub. He also said that the incident had ruined his life, as on one occasion someone had attempted to stab him. The courts finally agreed that Colin Pitchfork should serve at least 30 years before being eligible for parole, but in 2009 he appealed the length of his sentence. The court heard how he was an exemplary prisoner, and he had even advanced so far to become a specialist in the transcription of printed music into Braille. The judge stated his advancement in prison goes far beyond general good behaviour and positive response to his custodial sentence, but reflects very creditable assistance to disabled individuals outside the prison. He has achieved a high standard of education to a degree level. The outcome of the hearing was that Colin Pitchfork's tariff was reduced by two years. In the same year, his intricate skills learnt making occasion cakes at a bakery were transferred to something else creative. A detailed full orchestra cut and folded using music score paper was put on display at the Royal Festival Hall, but no name was attached to the work. Instead, the exhibition attributed the piece to an anonymous prisoner. Once it was public that it was made by the hands of Colin Pitchfork, the Royal Festival Hall bowed to public pressure and removed the piece. More outrage was caused when it was discovered the double child killer could have received up to £600 for its production. In 2016, Colin Pitchfork was moved to an open prison. As described by the Home Office, open prisons are the most effective way of ensuring inmates are ready to rejoin the community before their release. Inmates sent to these facilities from high-security prisons must be categorised as low-risk to the public before the move is made. The press published a picture of Colin Pitchfork in November 2017. He was alone, on a six-hour day release, sitting on a wall eating a sandwich. At 57 years old, he hardly resembles the 27-year-old that was convicted 30 years before. Dressed in jeans and a grey windbreaker jacket, with a bald head and grey beard, he doesn't stand out. Colin Pitchfork looks like a hundred men you pass on the high street each day. Not surprisingly, the families of the murdered teenagers were distressed about the news. Dawn Ashworth's mother Barbara, now in her 70s, spoke to the BBC about Colin Pitchfork's release. I think the key should have been thrown away long ago. No matter how he says that he feels that his character has been reformed, you don't know until he's out walking the streets. He has no right to any freedom at all because he took the lives of two girls. Why should he be able to continue his life? Kathy Eastwood, Linda Mann's mother, also spoke to the press and said, I'm so angry that the system is allowing this excuse for a human being, a double child rapist and murderer, to be on the streets where he sees the next opportunity to kill again. Yes, he will be locked up again, but what about the devastation that will leave another innocent family? I am angry beyond belief that I cannot stop this. It still seems very quick. Linda Mann's younger sister Rebecca has been extremely vocal about the release of her sister's killer. She set up a Change.org petition to keep Colin Pitchfork behind bars and spoke to the Leicester Mercury newspaper after a sighting of him in Bristol City Centre. Rebecca Mann said apparently he was eating a pulled pork sandwich and looking at some cookery books. He visited banks and a job centre, so it seems obvious he's getting ready for release. He looks a lot different with his beard and without the glasses, and apparently he has changed his name. He was unescorted in Bristol City Centre for six hours before he was taken back to his open prison as far as we can tell. We knew this was coming, but now it's actually here. It's upsetting for all of us. Dr James Treadwell A former criminology lecturer at the University of Leicester spoke to the Leicester Mercury newspaper in August 2017. He gave his professional view on Colin Pitchfork's release and whether he thought he was likely to offend again. He said, Can we be certain that Colin no longer presents a risk? No. He doesn't present a risk to young females in a prison cell. It strikes me as slightly concerning that we're even talking about releasing him. I have no doubt Pitchfork would have killed again if he had not been apprehended. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com To help support They Walk Among Us, please consider donating at patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us. If you enjoyed the show, please also consider leaving a review on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under the Walk Among Us podcast.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.